The Old Testament lesson for the baptism of our Lord is from Joshua chapter 3. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim. And they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away, at Adam, the city that is beside Zarathon. And those flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests, bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished, finished passing over the Jordan. This is the word of the Lord. Be, the epistle is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the third chapter. Glory be to thee, O Lord. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to thee. People often talk about 
trying to find themselves. I think that's something that's especially relevant this time of year as your New Year's resolutions are either going very well or, what's it, 10 days in, probably very poorly. That's how New Year's resolutions tend to go. These things are often bound up with trying to identify ourselves or re-identify ourselves or be the kind of people we want to be or find out who we truly are. These are lively questions in the minds of many people and they lead them to do really dramatic things in their lives. From simple things like getting a new haircut or getting all new wardrobe or getting a new car, maybe a Mustang during your midlife crisis, whatever it might be, or doing more dramatic things like moving away, going off to school to try and find yourself, or taking a new job, something you've never done before, or new relationships, new marriages even. The things that people do to try and find themselves are manifold. They try and try and try, and what's often happening in the effort to find ourselves is an investment, an obsession with nostalgia. Living life sort of looking backwards at once was. The glory of former days, trying to regain what you had in former days. The kinds of things that perhaps Paul had in mind when he was talking in 1 Corinthians 1 about wisdom and strength and things that are lofty and admirable, things that are beautiful and youthful and intelligent. Those kinds of things in our past, those are the things that we tend to long for, the things we try to find again when we find ourselves, when we look to find ourselves. Those things are the things that the world loves. The kinds of things that the people of Israel thought about as they wandered in the wilderness and looked back at the land of Egypt where they were slaves. The people of Israel struggled with the very same thing that we do. They were nostalgic and often very backward-looking. Remember, they were slaves in Egypt, and in fact, slaves under a terrible tyrant who was killing their babies. And yet, as they were wandering in the wilderness, led by God, led by his ark, led by the cloud of fire and the cloud of smoke, they would often look back and say, we liked things better back then. We liked things in the land of slavery. We liked the comforts that we had. Even though it wasn't really that comfortable, it was better than this, they thought, better than being led by an ark, better than being led by Moses. And now, in today's Old Testament lesson, better than being led by Joshua. That was the temptation, even as those 40 years of wandering were up and the people of Israel found themselves at the border of the Promised Land, about to cross the Jordan River and to take the city of Jericho. There they were. And the challenge for them was this. Are they going to follow the ark or not? Are they going to be nostalgic and backward-looking? Or are they going to be forward-looking? Are they going to try and find themselves in who they once were? Or are they going to listen to God about who they are meant to be? Joshua chapter 3 is a great chapter because it's one of those instances where the people of Israel do what is right. They listen to God's promises, and as the priests who are carrying the ark step foot in the Jordan River, God does this miraculous thing. That obstacle, that water that is preventing them from entering into the promised land, preventing them from receiving everything God has promised to them, it is no obstacle for God. The waters are stopped up. They're in a heap lying there, and the people walk through on dry ground just as they did across the Red Sea. The reward for trusting God's promises for listening to his promises and being forward-looking and not nostalgic and backward-looking, the reward is exactly what he has promised. He delivered to them this land, this land flowing with milk and honey, this land that was everything he meant for them, promises given all the way back to Abraham. 
to Isaac and to Jacob, a promise of a great nation, of a great family that would bless the whole world. The people of Israel in that moment succeeded in trusting God's promises and being forward-looking and listening to God's word to understand who they were and who they are meant to be. It's a good lesson for us, especially in the face of this world, which would have you try to find your identity, to try to find who you are in all of these trivial, temporal things. In intelligence or strength or the admiration of other people or beauty or youth, all of those things that the world loves, you know what happens to them. They fade and go away. And so even as people seek after these things and strive after these things in their identity crises, in their midlife crises, in whatever time it may be that they're trying to find themselves, even those things that they grasp after, that the world offers to them, they go away. They do not hold water. They cannot part the sea. They cannot stop up the water of the Jordan River. They cannot deliver anything that they promise. That is why Paul says in our epistle lesson this morning that God has chosen the opposite, the opposite of what the world chooses. Listen again to what he says. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, things that don't exist. God chose to bring to nothing all of the things that do exist, things that the world loves and clings to. Paul says that God has chosen precisely those people who have not found themselves, precisely those people whose identity is in question, who look back at what came before and find no nostalgia, nothing worth looking at, who look forward and wonder what is ahead of them, giving everything behind them. God has chosen precisely those people. He has chosen you. You who know what was in the past is not worth clinging to. You who know that all of the greatness that this world applauds, all of the wonderful comforts and pleasures of this life are not worth clinging to because they fade and go away and they rob you of God's promises. Paul is saying that God has chosen you who know that there's something better, something better ahead bound up in Christ who is your life. Christ who is your life. Paul says that God has called precisely those people, those kinds of people who are found in the Jordan River being baptized by John. All of Judea and Jerusalem and the surrounding area came out to John to be baptized by him, we're told in the gospel. We're told they came out to be baptized with a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. What does repentance mean if not that what came before is not worth clinging to? But there's nothing to be nostalgic about in the past because the past is a past of sin and death. What is repentance except eyes looking forward towards what God has promised? Turning around and following, not the Ark of the Covenant, not the priests whose feet open the way through the Jordan River, but following the Word of God and the Word of God incarnate, Jesus Christ himself. Paul says that those are the people God has chosen, those people, those sinners, in the water, who have not found themselves, or having found themselves, did not like what they found. God has chosen the likes of you. But you heard in our gospel lesson that this moment in Jesus' ministry, this moment was very confusing. It was confusing for John. John said, what's the deal here, Jesus? 
I shouldn't be baptizing you. I need to be baptized. Why are you here? What are you doing getting into the water with all of these sinners? Why are you asking me to baptize you when my baptism is a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins? Why are you here? That is the question. It's not just a question for that moment, but it's a question for all of Jesus' life into his death and now in the resurrection. What is he doing? What is he here for? It's a good question that John asks. And by Jesus submitting to John's baptism, by entering into the water with all of those sinners, by being baptized and seeing the heavens opened and God himself commending Jesus as his own beloved son, we see and hear the answer to that question. What is Jesus doing there? He is there to be precisely where he does not need to be. He is here on Christmas morning in human flesh exactly where he does not need to be. He is here in John's baptism exactly where he does not need to be in the company of sinners, in the company of people who are going to die for their sins, in the company of people who have no hope, who have not found themselves, who do not know who they are. He, of all people, does not need to be there. And in fact, as God's announcement comes from heaven, it's made all the more clear. Who is he? He knows who he is. All the world knows who he is, the Son of God. The one who is beloved from the Father, the one who has been anointed from eternity. He does not need to be there. Why is he there? To fulfill all righteousness, Jesus says. Because God's righteousness is manifest not just in delivering a law that tells us what is right and wrong, but also in showing mercy. And as Jesus stands there in the Jordan River, he is showing us what he means to do in his life, to take his place among sinners, and even better, to take the place of sinners. As Jesus stands there in the water, it is almost as if he is absorbing into himself all of the sins that are being washed away by those sinners in the water with him which is exactly what he does as he stretches out his arms on the cross and breathes his last. He is suffering the punishment for every last sin that you and every person in the entire history of the world has ever committed, doing exactly what he did not need to do, taking our place. That is what Jesus is doing there. That is why he says, it is fitting for you to baptize me. That is why he shows up in the Jordan River, because he knows who he is, and more importantly, he knows who he wants you to be. And so first, he takes all of your sins away. If you want to know who you are, the starting place is this. You are one for whom Christ died. If you want to know who you are, do not look at yourself. Do not look at what the world offers to you. Do not look at all of the things that are commended and acclaimed around you. Look instead at the cross and see who you are. You are someone for whom Christ died. You are someone for whom the love of the Father is so abundant that nothing would stop him, not even the grave. Nothing would stop him from saving you. That is who you are. And that can make you forward-looking. Not forward-looking to the things of this life, the things you yet hope to do with your remaining years, but forward-looking to a life that has no end. Because, of course, Jesus being in the water does not just mean something about what he's there to do. It also means something about what your baptism has done for you. Jesus has taken your place, and you have taken his. By being baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, you have been given his name. 
That name which is above every name, the name at which every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. You have been given his name. You have taken his place. Not his place on the cross, but his place in glory. His place in receiving all of the good things of your heavenly father. A great way, a most beautiful way to think about what happened in your baptism is that you were married to Christ. You were wed to him as a bride is to her bridegroom. And what happens when a husband and wife get married? Of course, all of the bad things that belong to one person now belong to the other. So imagine you got married and you had $150,000 of credit card debt. Guess who that belongs to now? <laughs> that belongs to your spouse. Okay? But all of the riches, all of the wealth, all of the kingdoms that belong to your spouse, they belong to you. All of the riches, all of the wealth, all of the life, all of the mercy, all of the hope, all of the future that belongs to Christ is now yours. Because he has taken your place. And you have taken his. What a precious gift we have in the baptism of Jesus and even more in your own baptism. What a precious gift we have which saves you from having to wonder who you are. You do not need to find yourself. You do not need to go looking. You know who you are. You can see yourself in the cross of Jesus. You can see who you are, someone for whom Christ has died. You can see who you are in the fact that Christ rose from the dead. So also shall you. You will live forever, not in the way that this world lives, not striving after things that go away, but in eternity, with righteousness and redemption and peace, forever. That is who you are. That is who you are. And so that is why you should always, every day, as Luther tells us, remember your baptism. Return to your baptism. Think about how God has called you by name and given you his own name. When you make the sign of the cross and you say, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, what are you doing? You are remembering that you are called by God's name. That you are in Christ's place, even as he has taken yours. Do that often. Return to your baptism with repentance and faith that you are be being delivered to a promised land by God's mighty and outstretched arm. No less miraculous than it was when the people of Israel crossed that Jordan River and inherited that promised land of Canaan flowing with milk and honey, no less miraculous is it that you also shall pass through the grave to life everlasting. And so give glory to God. To him belongs all glory and honor, now and forever. Amen. Amen.